0: The first of my posts was called, Who is Shane? That we know our stranger only as Shane, and aren't even sure that's his real name, is reflective of how little we know about him overall. Who is Shane? In these last chapters, we're not given an answer to that question, but we are offered meaningful hints at it. We glimpse a capacity in Shane that had gone previously unobserved. The fun he has rounding up loose steer reveals a childish joy in him that seems to have been long buried. When he first arrives on the farm, wrinkling up the corners of his eyes is the closest he comes to a smile. But now that he has settled in, and that state of tension has eased, we see him in a moment of pure exuberance. He fairly lifted the horse into a gallop in one leap, and that old cow pony of father's lit out after those steers like it was fun. He was tall and straight in the saddle, the few seconds it took father to close the gate. He and the horse were blowing a bit, and both of them were perky and proud. Shane, if I didn't know better, I'd say you were a faker. There's still a lot of kid in you. The first real smile I had seen yet flashed across Shane's face. Maybe. Maybe there is at that. But the alertness never goes away entirely, and we see a recurring theme in the explanation of why. We are told time and time again that this alertness, among other of his qualities, is characteristic of him in a way independent of experience or circumstances. It is simply him. he was still alert and watchful. I came to realize that this was inherent in him, not learned or acquired, simply a part of his natural being." Unquote. By this point, there is simply no question that the past that troubles him is that of a gunfighter, and a supremely talented one. Shane tells Bob with confidence how to wear his holster and hold his gun in a way, quote, "...as good as any and better than most." When he holds the old broken pistol himself, it comes alive and appears as if it were an extension of the man himself. At Bob's question about real gunfighters, we are told a queer light flickered in his eyes and was gone. And when Chris's partner sees Shane through the saloon doors, he gets out of there without looking back, content to be called scared and it is clearly a past that troubles him his advice to bob about how best to hold his gun brings on that bitter expression and faraway gaze when he is confronted by chris his instincts kick in Quote, "every line of his body was as taut as a stretched whipcord was alive and somehow rich with an immense eagerness" Unquote. but he overrides that instinctive inclination lets out the breath pent up in him and walks out he seems troubled though that he may have walked out on this particular conflict but he is walking straight into a much bigger one so though we don't know shane's past in specifics we know he is a man with a capacity for childlike joy and familial affection who was born with the talents and the instincts of a fierce protector and who for whatever reason appears to want to leave the life of a gunfighter behind. The next of my posts was called, I Could Like That Boy. So, why doesn't Shane fight Chris? For a few reasons. First, it just wouldn't be a fair fight. If Chris's partner hadn't run for the hills, there would have been two of them, and then Shane could, in good conscience, have taken them on. But when Chris walks into the bar alone, Bob observes, quote, I could have sworn that Shane, studying Chris in his effortless way, was somehow disappointed. Unquote. There is just no way he is taking on this kid. That he thinks of him as a kid is borne out in their exchange. When Chris teases him about drinking soda pop, Shane says, quote, You've had your fun, and it's mighty young fun. Now run home and tell Fletcher to send a grown up man next time. Unquote. Also, Shane feels an instant admiration for Chris, who can be forgiven his errors because of his youth, and who shows real courage. When his partner walks out on him, Chris forges ahead and says he will brace Shane himself. This is all summed up in Shane's comment to Bob, quote, Why should a man be smashed because he has courage and does what he's told? I could like that boy, unquote. The other element here is suggested by the wistfulness of the statement. He doesn't want to fight Chris in particular, but he also just doesn't seem to want to fight. When he subdues his fighter's instincts, he again gets that solemn expression, and, he looked away from Chris, past him, over the tops of the swinging doors beyond, over the roof of the shed across the road, on into the distance— where the mountains loomed in their unending loneliness." It is the same solemnness we see in Shane when it becomes clear to Joe what is coming next. The last of my posts was answers to last week's question. Last week, I asked for your interpretation of what Joe really meant when he told Bob not to get to liking Shane too much. I've been discussing this scene with my students for decades— you suggested many of the same answers they have, and some compelling new ones. Some suggested that he was worried, not, as he said, the chain would be moving on, but that he might face real danger. To suggest the problem was that he is fiddle-footed was to put the point euphemistically. He might be driven away by dramatic circumstances, or even killed. A related point made by some was that maybe Joe didn't want Bob to be disappointed when he discovered the gritty reality of this glamorous hero. He was protecting him against the sadness he might feel when he discovers what Shane has been destined to do. Some thought maybe he was telling Bob to stay out of Shane's way. He isn't there to be Bob's pet or his uncle, but to do important work. Others suggested that he was warning Bob against a life like Shane's. He wants him to admire Shane, but not to emulate him. Imagine a father and son watching some terribly dangerous sport and reveling in it. Then the father looks over at the son, seeing his eyes gleaming, and thinks, But hold up, I don't want you doing that. These are all fascinating suggestions, but I have reservations about them all. I just don't see any other evidence that Joe has concerns or reservations about Shane and his destiny. There are glimpses that Marion does, and she has to nudge Joe to see them. But Joe's admiration for Shane seems unqualified and complete. My instinct from the first was the one suggested by Amesh Adalja, that Joe was really giving this advice to himself. Ultimately, here is my unfortunate conclusion. The scene is flawed. Because given my methodology and the number of times I have read this book, I am confident that if I can't give you an authoritative answer, it's because there isn't sufficient evidence to form one. But if it's a flaw, it's a minor one in an otherwise very purposeful, clear, integrated, and absolutely beautiful story.